it was a war on the other side of the world. On April the 2nd, 1982, Argentine forces invaded the Falkland Islands and claimed it as their own. The task force, with all its power, is ready. Britain has gathered its might. It must set its course. Accompanied by the late Brian Hanrahan for the BBC, a task force of more than 100 ships had set sail within days to make the 8,000-mile journey to liberate the islands. I thought we'd better get ready and take it seriously, but I'm not quite sure that I absolutely believe we'd do it. But as they sailed south, resolve hardened. First, with the controversial sinking of the Argentine cruiser, the General Belgrano, with the loss of 323 lives. It would be the largest air and sea battle involving British forces since the Second World War. A hundred aircraft and more than 20 ships would either be destroyed or damaged. Julian Thompson was the man charged with the initial British landings at San Carlos on the 21st of May. Luckily, it was thick fog, so the Argentine Air Force never found us. We knew they were trying to find us. We could hear them zooming around and uh, trying to find us. They might have created a bit of mayhem had they done so. That was the bit I was really worried about. Goose Green was the first time British paratroopers came face to face with the enemy. The British lost 18 men, among them friends of Paul Bishop, who was just 21. After we took casualties and, and friends had been killed, there was, in my, you know, my feelings was, was hate towards them, you know. We, you know, we wanted to take out as many as we could. We wanted to remove them from the islands. Later, Paul witnessed this, the Argentine attacks at Bluff Cove, where the British lost more than 50 men. We're now between the two gun lines, and there's a right old artillery duel going on between them. The battle on the ground took just over a month. On the 14th of June, the Argentines surrendered. 649 of them lost their lives. The British had lost 255 men. So what will the 40th anniversary mean for these veterans? I personally don't expect anything from, from the country, from the government. You know, we, we just volunteered to do it and we did it. It'd be nice to be remembered. I visit the San Carlos Cemetery and um, usually shed a tear there. Uh, and look out over that peaceful water and remember what it was like with guns firing and ships being hit and aeroplanes bombing. And this contrast is really quite remarkable. 40 years on from a war on the other side of the world, but they are still remembered. I've just actually moved some of the equipment along to... It's, it's from our side, Lee. It's fucking Wales, mate. It's a mm. third world fucking... It's like... It's like I wonder if you get a better reception on the Falklands You probably would get a better reception in the Falklands, Lee. That's a very good point. Very good point, yeah. What a fantastic segue. That leads us into the subject we're going to talk about tonight. It does, yeah. Now, I've just been reading a bit of the history of the Falklands because, you know, obviously it's been a contentious issue that it being under British rule. Now, from what I can find out is that... Uh, Captain John Strong was the first person to uh, land on the Falklands, or the first person who had an undisputed account of a landing. 
Okay. And it was eventually inhabited by British settlers and Spanish settlers who coexisted. I think initially they didn't know about each other, right? Uh, so when they discovered when the Spanish discovered the British there, they were going to start a war, but we managed to calm it down, and uh, you know, so they both coexisted. And then uh, economic problems meant that the Brits were sort of uh, pulling away from their overseas territories, and it got deserted for a bit. Though the British left a plaque saying that it was still owned by George the Third. And uh, from that point on, it was just sort of visited by sealers and fishermen until I think the early 1800s, when for some reason this German, Louis Verne, was given permission to go there. I think it was by the Argentinians or some sort of alliance of South America gave him permission. He fucked about for a bit. and um, Probably a nonce. He was accused of piracy because he uh, captured some US ships, so they steamed in. And then I think the the, the, the Argies thought they had it because they gained independence from Spain. But the British came back and said, we're just reasserting our right to these islands because they're ours. That was 1833, so that was quite a controversial incident, the British coming back. I think from that point on, the, they were in our hands. I think there was periods where we couldn't be on. But uh, this little level in 1982, didn't it? Fucking madness. It just says it all, though, Lee, doesn't it? Barren shithole in the middle of the... It's like the Shetlands plus four. You know, it's a barren, bleak, non-tree-growing shithole. Let's be honest, when you look at it, yeah. It is like the worst kind of grim moorland. It's freezing cold. I mean, who lives there? What is it well, all about? I was wondering, like, who lives there? And one thing I wasn't quite sure about was how big they are. Because uh, I always thought they were fairly small, but they're actually, I think, about half the size of Wales. And there's about eight yeah, yeah. different bits to it, aren't there? So it is quite a large area. But yeah, I mean, what is what would be your, I suppose, fishing, maybe? Would people there make a living doing that? I think Stanley. Yeah, farming. Uh, bit of farming, yeah. I mean, there's the famous quote from the Argentinian guy uh, after the war who said it was uh, the equivalent of two bald men fighting over a comb. Could be us, Could be us, couldn't it? you and me mate but we got the common sense to not worry about the fight we're bald forget it the reality was that the political ground to be made by both galtieri and Thatcher. no doubt about it well yeah you're right i mean galtieri definitely did it because he his popularity was waning and a lot of people reckon it it did get thatcher re-elected now Michael Foote was the prime, the, the opposition leader then, wasn't he? So I don't remember him being a particular strong leader. I could be wrong. I mean, he was about 90, wasn't he? Well, he wasn't quite that old, but I think he was um, certainly somebody who uh, he was particularly old and he was 
a kind of Corbyn Easter. They were interesting polar opposites, weren't they? Michael Foot and Maggie Thatcher. Michael Foot was a staunch sort of lefty, very mm. principled lefty. I think he was a very good politician, really, but he didn't present himself in a television-friendly way. He was a bit of a kind of crazy, uh, what you might call, mad professor in his look, you know. And he, he was. A bit like sort of um, yeah. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or something, you know. And Thatcher was this prim and proper sort of housewife with a bouffant hair, <laughs> lacquered with fucking Cossack hairspray or some bullshit like that. You know, <laughs> she was fucking horrible. Uh, and the, the, the way she presented herself in this store... Uh, she was so the Iron Lady, staunch, we won't give in them. The majority of the public hated her. Her, her um, popularity had waned hugely because she came in all guns blazing, like the horror that she was, and she was fucking over everything. You know, the, the coal mines, the steel industry, everything, you, you name it. Yeah. And she was deeply unpopular. So she needed something to get her re-elected. And, uh, oh, hello, what's that? Some obscure fucking place in the middle of nowhere that we actually own, apparently. Why do but we own no one, it? Why no do we own it? it? I think most people in Britain wouldn't have heard I it. I haven't heard. Did you know about it, mate? Well, I, I was, was only 11 or 12. Bizarre. <laughs> and I was probably about 13, and I was like thinking, yeah, I've sort of vaguely heard it. What's the Falklands? But you get carried away by the whole media bullshit. And when you look back at it now... Oh, it was horrendous. It was political power over... It was like the First World War, watching those documentaries. I mean, I watched that documentary, that Frontline documentary that you told me to watch, Lee, and I didn't realise that. I didn't realise how horrific it was and how lasting it's been for those individuals that were... I mean, these are hardened paratroopers and Marines. They, they had a terror... It was horrible. It was like yeah. despicable French warfare. I couldn't believe that guy who was, he'd just come out of Sandhurst, hadn't he? And he was 19 years Absolutely. old. Absolutely. He was like a... a 19 city. commander. He was a commander, 19, and he was put in charge of these paratroopers that had had like 10 or 15 years experience. I mean, that just seems it's insane. all about... Well, it's insane because that's the idea of the ruling class, mate. That's yeah. the whole idea of the ruling class. This is the thing that I argue about all the time. You go to someone like Santa's, you're part of the ruling class, you dictate these fucking oaths. And these mm-hmm. lads in the army who are so experienced could, could snap his neck in a fucking second, go along yeah. with it. And he loses his shit pretty, I mean, no offence to, to him, because he lost his shit because he was devastated by a member of his team getting killed right at the start of Goose Green. And... Uh, it's the corporals that are coming in to sort of like, you need to get take control of yourself. To be fair to the paratroopers, they did try and look after him, didn't they? And, um, of course they did. And they I'm did not respect crying, they I'm not crying, authority. You can't blame any of them as an individual, mate. I mean, as, no, no, not at all, not at all. And, and I have a lot of love and respect for everybody in that documentary. They're amazing people amazed got through it and dealt with it in their own individual ways what i'm saying is wrong is the whole fucking system the whole system is a disgrace this kind of like ruling class it will not change my sort of dictate my mindset on politics it only enhances it 
we are being absolutely shoveled shit by the powers that be and we keep getting shoveled shit by the powers that be and these working class heroes have a deal with the mental trauma of it the mental trauma of telling themselves that they're going somewhere to kill people right think about mm. that going somewhere to kill well, people most of them were up for it weren't they? they said they said they wanted to go because you know absolutely join the army you know you do ultimately want to take part in a conflict i'd like to get all those people on my side and say let's go at the fucking ruling class the people that end up being marines the people that end up being the paras and say come to my side and let's go after those fuckers that have all the power and all the wealth and let's see how let's see how successful they are then you know i'd like to get those guys because they get manipulated. They get manipulated in the wrong way. They get controlled by the, the ruling classes. And we could destroy the fucking ruling classes with some of the people that we we have. I mean, I'm being yeah. I'm, I'm very radical here. But it made me so cross listening to that. Because I think they're so manipulated into doing what they think is the right thing by crown and country and all that. And they've been fucking used and abused. They are yeah. used and abused. Yeah, there was a lot of stories of the veterans coming back and similar to the Vietnam Vietnam veterans that were just treated shit by their own country and ignored. Absolutely. Robert Lawrence, who was in the documentary Tumble Down, the drama yeah. first was about him and, and that's Sorry, very much about how he was treated afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you, Dave. It, it's, but uh, I, I'm glad you said that. They were absolute amazing guys weren't they you know just listen to amazing them. and hardly any of them had spoke about it afterwards like there was a few saying i've never spoke about this before you know that's 40 years on and some couldn't handle it when they got back there was one guy who said to his mum and dad I, I can't speak to you <laughs> and he went on the piss for three weeks there was another bloke who couldn't stand being indoors because he was on the sagalahad that was bombed and he felt claustrophobic inside. So he slept in the garden, didn't he, for a few months? Those guys on the on the Galahad and that guy who wanted to blow his own brains out because he thought he was yeah. he, he betrayed his own, uh, uh, another comrade in arms. And literally, he was a, a slight a fella who was trying to drag him out of the smoke, kept passing out, couldn't yeah. just couldn't save him, just couldn't save him. You know, yeah. I was moved by that. The only thing that saved him from killing himself was the fact that he'd he'd lived, he had survived, and that he thought he had gone to some, he had gone some way into saving his life. Yeah. Oh. And I've got no problem. I've got. I haven't got any problem with the guys who went to Sanders and were there on the front line. What yeah. I've got a problem with is people being used in that way. You know, I've got a real issue with that, and I think. I mean, I'm the softest shite in the world, but I just look at that and I just think respect to these people. And I'd want them on my side to have a go at the fuckers that are in power. Because the, the fuckers in power are slippery bastards. They always have been and they always will be. They use the people. They use everybody. And they never get their hands dirty. I think it's so despicable. Some of the things that... Are, and the Falklands War, the, the Falklands campaign, so despicable what took place when you think about it. Because, I mean, Goose Green... Going into trenches in the middle of the night and knowing full well that they had to kill everybody, it was kill or be killed. It was like the First World yeah. War all over again. 
First World War. The thing with Goose Green, as far as I remember, was it some sort of, it was a narrow strip, I think, that they needed to get through, didn't it? It's a narrow strip of land that they have to get through on the way to Stanley, exactly that, on the way to Stanley, and and it was packed with um, Argentinian troops. And I feel, do you know what? Just like the squaddies from Britain, I feel absolutely for the Argentinian kids because they were totally, they were conscripted and duped they weren't like the trained paras that we took over there. That's why 600 yeah. lads, our lads, basically, you know, destroyed 1,400 Argentinians. Yeah. Was, because, that, was that after Groove's Green where they basically captured the two Argentinians and said, they gave one of them a note and said, run back to your general, give him, give him this note. And the note said, if you don't surrender, we'll come, we'll come and flatten you. <laughs> and they were massively outnumbered by the Argentinians. Yeah, but they got through. I think I'm right in saying that the goose green thing was so amazing because of the momentum that the Brits yeah got going. You know, they just were ploughing on and on. They were just cutting through the arches. They were putting themselves yeah. on the line, and then they just got the arches to surrender because by that time they were absolutely shitting themselves. I think one of the guys, the British guy, said. They were a bunch of footwits because they surrendered to about 70 bedraggled, knackered-looking blokes. Yeah, yeah. No, but that, that was a real gamble, that, though, wasn't it? That was That's amazing. Huge. But the, the training, I think, from that, though, from, from our, I hate using these terms, but our lads, if you like, was that, uh, and this is probably part of the British training, which is, you know, obviously kind of second to none in which brutality, but is... You keep going, you, you move forward, you keep going, you're relentless because basically you're, you're taking advantage of the situation, you're taking control, you're being assertive. You, whatever you do, you don't, you don't take a step back, go forward, you shoot, you stab, you bayonet, you keep going, you just keep moving well, what forward. What guy said, didn't he, that if you stop, you're dead. You stop, you're dead, exactly. He, he, he was a particularly interesting character, this guy who... The way he got through it was he pretended that he was already dead. He's fucking amazing. He's an yeah. amazing character. I loved his psychology. Brilliant psychology. He actually was the one who shouted out, wasn't he, to the to the um, to the, the commander, the young commander. Yes, because he, Mr. Was, Waddington. Yes, Mr. Waddington. Waddington. Mr. Waddington. Mr. Waddington. Get a fucking grip. Yeah, and he brought in the experienced commander to get hold of him then didn't he he came yeah, in yeah because they realized he was getting too passionate too absolutely passionate like i'm gonna yeah, kill you yeah. all you fuckers you know because his mate was dead and he was baying it in but it's amazing the aftermath of that is the guy that was waddington who was the commander who lost it he said that the only thing he remembers about that was that he bayoneted this young argentinian and that he he stabbed him, and he he also shat himself at the same time. So this horrible lingering smell of blood and feces. He don't remember anything beyond that. It's yeah. bizarre, isn't it? Because the adrenaline had kicked in so much. There's so many stories there that are so touching on on a personal level that it blew mm. me away. That Lee, it really blew yeah. me away. I watched it twice. I watched it twice because I really thought it was. It was remarkable, and I didn't realise, because I think most laypersons, and I hope that we're doing some justice here, actually, today, because by highlighting this, because most laypersons' thoughts 
on the Falklands is, oh, yeah, wishy-washy bullshit fucking war. The Brits came in, got rid of the Arges and regained power. And the Arges went away crying a little bit, you know. The reality was it was trench warfare and people have been traumatised. Traumatised. And like you're saying about the Arches, they were a pathetic bunch really, weren't they? Because they were very ill-equipped, underprepared. The Brits, some of them felt sorry for them, didn't they? Because they, they just felt had these... very sorry for them. They were shot on. They were conscripted troops. Most of them have only been used to like the weather in Buenos Aires. Not like the Paras on the Brecon Beacons in the middle of winter. They, they were used to the cold weather. They couldn't believe how cold and miserable it was. And then they've got this force of nature coming at them that were the British bloody squaddies and the British paratroopers and then the Marines. Unbelievable. I mean, some of these guys were like SAS trained paratroopers. They were at, I mean, that story of the guy getting in the trench and the only way he could deal with the Argentinians by headbutting them out of... He couldn't get his gun down, could he? He couldn't get his gun down. He was too tight for him to get his gun down, so he just headbutted this guy to death, virtually. He headbutted him. He's basically saying he headbutted certainly to unconsciousness, but probably to death. I mean, that freaked me out. And he said when he went there, oh, yeah, I loved it. I mean, he was really honest, I thought. Was he the Catholic guy? No, the Catholic guy was amazing. He had a much more holistic view about it all. He went there thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to be if I have to kill somebody? Because it's not just killing somebody. It's killing a family. It's destroying a memory. Yeah, he was a Roman Catholic. And his story was incredible that when he got there on Goose Green and he ended up shooting somebody to death with a fucking machine gun, he then went and cradled that person in his arms and wiped his brow and apologised to them and said sorry as they died in his arms. I mean, come on. He felt devastated that he'd killed, that he'd taken another life, but he was able to do it. So it's something about the, the, the paratroop training. If you can qualify as a, a paratrooper or someone, because you, you always think paras, paras are like right up there, aren't they? Next stop is the SAS, isn't it? Paras, next stop, SAS. You're primed to kill, right? It's kill or be killed. So they were going out there to flex their training muscles in reality. And they mm-hmm. did it very, very well. But it didn't mean to say that it wasn't going to fuck them up afterwards. Yeah. Because to me, everybody who did that, all those paras who did that, are damaged people as a consequence of doing it. Yeah. And the story of Tumbledown is equally amazing, isn't it? The way that, because that's Tumbledown is like a mountain or a, or a large hill. And yeah. the Arges were at the top of that. And to take that, we had to sort of, I mean, if you're on the top of a hill, you've got a huge advantage over your enemy. Mm. But the British stormed it during the middle of the night, didn't he, when it was dark. Oh, and amazing. fucking got over it and conquered it. And that was, uh, that brought us into Robert Lawrence's story, didn't it? When he was, uh, he told quite a, a harrowing story that when he's, he came up against an RG and he just stabbed him and uh, he was about to finish him off and the guy said, please, you know, in English. Oh, God. You know. It's so devastating. I do feel for a lot of those Argentinian lads because they just weren't equipped. They, they were not in the same league as the Paras. They just no, weren't. 
Never heard of the bloody Falklands as well. <laughs> no, they didn't give a shit. They were just they were conscripted and sent out by that fucking Galtieri's junta. And I'm just very cynical. It just reminds you of the Russian situation now, doesn't it? Bloody oh, all these oh. souls being sent to the deaths. Oh, know, they're not, they don't want to do it. Power yeah. over people, yeah. mate. It's, pe- it's individuals in power flexing their desires over the mass, the masses, really. Yeah. It's very upsetting. Yeah. But talking of the political situation, Dave, now, do you not think, though... Once the Argies invaded, that do you think Britain had that much choice but to send a task force down there to reclaim them? Because although you can argue that the Argies have more right over the islands than we do, would it not be the case that it's up to the inhabitants to determine who their rulers are? Yeah, it's a good point, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, I mean that it... was always the British position, wasn't it? That it's not about the land, it's about these people are British and they want to stay British. They don't want to be taken over by the Argentinians. We only fight wars, though, that we can win. Have you noticed? It's quite interesting. And when we do end up embroiling ourselves in wars that we think we can win and then become much more complicated, we're quick to bail out. You know, I'm talking about Iraq, for example, or Afghanistan. And... Prime I suppose example. the difference is there was no real interest for us in terms of British subjects being there, was it? Was there? I mean, how many people live? How many Brit so-called? Well, Brits, we could probably give them a little village in the Isle of Man or something like that. Well, that's it. What we perhaps should have done is said, right, we're going to send a few boats. Let's fuck off. It's not worth it. It's not worth going to war over. You, you you'll have to come and live in England. Yeah, exactly. You know, many of them might have been chuffed with that. They probably would have been. We'll get, we'll get you a council house. I think uh, resettling the English people that were in in the Falklands in a rural area of Scotland, I bet you would have cost a fraction of what it cost to send the troops out there and all the equipment and the ships and everything else and the devastation and the the long lasting after effect to that of people in hospital and treatment and psychological problems and operation after operation compared to just saying, here's a council house somewhere outside of Aberdeen. You've got the choice of coming or you've got the choice of staying. But if you stay, then we're signing it back to the Arches. Exactly. I mean, that would have been a better solution, wouldn't it? It's not like there was any, like, there's no oil there. I mean, it was mad of the Arches to get involved because why do they give a shit about it? Really? It's well, a very... It was mainly Galtieri's political yeah. positioning, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was exactly that. It was exactly that, Lee. It was, a, it was Galtieri. It was um, a popularist idea because the Malvinas, as the, the, as the Argentinians call it, the Malvinas Islands, was a contentious issue. So it was his way of like saying, we're going to reclaim land that belongs to Argentina. Lee, Lee, I've just Googled some information here that I've just got to tell you right now because it's blown me away immediately. You're not, you're not going to believe this, but it says uh, as of 2012, the population of the Falkland Islands is, wait for this, 2,840 people. Fuck's sake. 
That is insane. There's about a thousand, almost a thousand people, I think, killed, wasn't there? Between the Argies and the Brits. It's not, it's not to mention the people that were maimed for life, physically and mentally. That is yeah. just... Well, I think you made a very good point about we don't get involved in wars we can't win. Yeah, this is the thing. We're not sending troops into the Ukraine, are we? And we're not bloody... Uh, we never decided to get involved in Hong Kong. And, and uh, you yeah, know, we were happy to say, oh, yeah, you have it back, China. And that yeah. all the people of Hong Kong say, no, we want to stay part of Britain. We want to stay part of the British Empire or this, whatever it is, this kind of link we have with Britain, not with China. What did we do? We just watched as those people revolting against the Chinese yeah. got absolutely slaughtered. And who knows what's yeah. happened to them since? Probably been killed. Yeah, I think a lot of them were disappeared. It's fucking bullshit. It's all bullshit. I've always been cynical about the Falklands War because of Thatcher. Mm-hmm. I do genuinely believe that she may well have won the next general election, but it would have been tight. She won it yeah. very easily. And she had her mandate to carry on what she wanted to do with her Thatcherite policies, which was basically to decimate uh, industry and bring in a kind of uh, a, um, a culture of um, service industries, really, basically. And that's mm. what happened, isn't it? After the Falklands War, she had that mandate. And she changed the face of Britain as a consequence, really. There was a good documentary I saw last night about Thatcher on BBC4. Thatcher was obviously all for people making loads of money and the free market and um, denationalising things. But she was, Bernard Ingham, a press secretary, said she was absolutely horrified by the excess that the bankers were showing and, the, and the, you know, them being all dead vulgar and... But she created it. This is the well, thing. Exactly. I mean, it's like letting kids in a sweet shop. What did you expect to happen? It was like Frankenstein being horrified by the monster. I mean, the warning signs were there. It's like yeah. Frankenstein, you know, literature gives you lots of ideas about the human condition. And the whole point of Frankenstein is when you you have a utopian ideal, right? And mm. the utopian ideal tends to be a fucking nightmare. And that's what it's been, you know, for a lot of people. And we've never recovered from a lot of the Thatcherite policies, things that have taken place in this, in Britain, never recovered from it. You know, people moan about everything, house prices and the cost of living and transportation. We sold the crown jewels in this country, really, I think. You know, telecom, the railways. And I've, I've known people that I'm very friendly with who, who've changed their opinion from being quite right-wing mainly because they believe that the whole transport system in Britain's gone to shit because of Thatcherite policies and because mm. it would have been better keeping it as a state-run, state-controlled entity. And look at the council houses. Where this, how many council houses are there left in Britain? You know, because it's all been sold off. Nothing's getting <laughs> built. We're probably lucky because we've got one child so we can leave the house that we've bought to one child. But if you've got, you know, our kid's going to get on the ladder the way it's going. It's a fucking nightmare. They're going to be oh, renting oh. for the rest of their fucking lives. We've just had too much Tory influence over the years and far too many people buy into the whole dogma and rhetoric of the Tory parties, I'm sorry to say. 
and yeah. and that happened sadly i think in the falklands war that does not mean to say that i have nothing but empathy for the soldiers that that were there yeah absolutely um i suppose another incident that was uh, one of the main incidents in the war, if not the the main most memorable one, was the sinking of the Belgrano. Indeed, the sinking of. I've been looking into this, and it's very interesting because obviously the narrative that you hear about, or you did certainly after it was sunk, was that it was sailing away, and we it was it was outside the exclusion zone, and we just fucking torpedoed it, you know, because we could. But it doesn't seem like that was the case because. The actual captain of the ship came out. Um, he survived it, obviously. Uh, but he said it was a perfectly legit, legitimate thing to do. He said, you know, we weren't going back. We were manoeuvring. We're temporarily turned round the other way. Mm. But we knew we were in danger. And he categorically said it was not an illegal act. And I think if you look at the facts, it, it probably wasn't. Because the day before... Britain intercepted this transmission uh, on the 1st of May, 82. It was from an Argentinian admiral saying that we're going to launch a massive attack on the British task force, which is inside the exclusion zone. And the Brits sort of worked out that there was two battleships, uh, one on the north and one on the south. The Belgrano was one on the south. And they were getting in position to form a pincer movement so they're both going to move in well it looked like they were both going to move into the exclusion zone and uh, basically attack the task force from both sides i think also britain said any ship coming even out even close to the exclusion zone is in danger because i think there was two exclusion zones there was the inner one and the outer one but britain had warned the argus that if you sort of start fucking about just outside the first one you are in danger mm. so i think we have vindicated in sinking the belgrano mm. because it was about to attack us well I, absolutely i mean i'm sure there's... i didn't know that because obviously when you hear about the belgrano there's that awful headline that was in the sun gotcha mm. right and then there was that woman who really had a go at thatcher wasn't there on tv the school teacher, do you remember? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of contention with things that took place in the whole thing. You know, the reality is that the Argentinians were more warmongers. I've no doubt about that. And they were the ones, um, the aggressors. They were the aggressors, you know. And from the spoils of war is the victor. And Thatcher was the ultimate victor, wasn't she? Um mm-hmm. The reality was that Galtieri was an idiot. I mean, Galtieri was a fucking plonker, a, dict- a horrible dictator, a plonker. And we went in there yeah. and we, you know, if there's any Argentinian listeners to this, <laughs> uh, I do apologise. But the reality is we embarrassed you terribly. I mean, you've embarrassed us in world, in football, you know, many times, you know, but in, on a military well, level. What's the thing, isn't it, Dave? I do remember that year very well because obviously it was one of the best World Cups '82, wasn't it? And that happened yeah. like just after the Falklands. Oh, amazing, remarkable, yeah. really. That Brazil team. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With Falcao yeah. and uh, yeah, Ada, Zico. Oh, what a Junior. team! 
They got they got kicked out the quarterfinals though, mate. They didn't get beyond the quarterfinals. Yeah, well, Paolo Rossi. Uh, Paolo Rossi, Italy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that was a brilliant yeah. World Cup. That I remember that so well. But yeah, it was, and it was very. Um, it was a very funny time because, of course, we had two big Argentinian footballers in the what was then the first division, what you would call the Premier League today, in uh, Ozzy Ardiles and... Um, Don't mention him. <laughs> <laughs> the year before, broke my heart. Magic goal against Man City. <laughs> Ricky Villa. <laughs> the, the Ricky Villa. Magic goal. Sorry, pal. It wasn't fair on you, that. I'm sorry. But, yeah. you know, Ricky Villa, oh. and in particular, I mean, Ricky Villa was, apart from that goal, it was a bit of an also ran, really, compared to Ozzy Ardiles. But they were big fixtures in uh, in British popular culture. It was weird when you think about it. It was very exotic, wasn't it, having a couple of arches in there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got like some of these Welsh lads around here, and they've still they've got pictures of looking uh, uh, Maradona handling the ball into the goal on their Facebook pages. You know what I mean? I think it's fantastic. Still, still, still. to this day, man. Day. I didn't know the Welsh was so anti-English. I knew the Scots. Oh, were, oh but... babe, trust me. I think it's jovial. It's tensely on a sporting level, but yeah. No, but it was for the. Decades ago, that wasn't it. Well, I think what's interesting, Lee, is there's a strong sense of nationalism. There's a strong sense of nationalism in Wales, right? There is a very strong sense of nationalism. I've got friends who've got a very strong sense of nationalism. They're accepting of us because we live here and we work here and we contribute. But there's a strong sense of nationalism. There's a hugely strong sense of nationalism in Scotland. But I personally, and this is something that my, if anyone, if any of my local friends might hear this, they might be a bit shocked by this, but I hate nationalism. I hate it. It's nationalism has created the whole Brexit thing. Nationalism created the Falklands War. Nationalism created this idea of having armies. That, I don't get it. I'm going to be a, such a hippie in saying this, but I feel like I'm a representative of the fucking world, certainly a representative of Europe. When I have to fill in a form, I'm applying for different jobs at the minute, and I you have to put in British. I want to put in, no, I'm just a person for fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. I don't care. If you check my DNA, I've probably got all sorts in me, all from all over the fucking place. It's bonkers. And we need to get beyond that now. Surely we're a better society. We're beyond that. I think, I think it comes, I think nationalism comes more natural if you've been oppressed by maybe your neighbour like the Scots have you know I can understand them sort of banding together and thinking yeah. we've got an identity we we stood up to the Brits and I can get that you know because they they have suffered under colonialism and, and the, the English and yeah. it's probably similar to Wales I've never felt nationalistic nationalism to me makes sense if you're a bit of an underdog I don't think the English have ever been an no, underdog. No, but there's a point of that. I, I, there's certain things that people get away with, if you like, on Facebook in Wales that mm-hmm. I know for a fact that would be deemed as almost racist in England. People put on their Facebook page in Wales things like, thank God I was born Welsh. These are people who are, mm-hmm. I meet them in the street and they're nice people, but they think that's acceptable. To me, it's the same as 
England fans sticking their fucking George Cross outside their house constantly. And I don't think it's fair that people who celebrate St George's Day are called jingoistic or racist or yeah, they shouldn't be. colonialists. You know, because you can't, it's so hypocritical. You know, you can have the Scottish identity. You can have them celebrating St Andrew's Day and being proud to be Scottish. If as soon as you say you're proud to be English, you, you're deemed like you're a UKIPper or, you know, a racist. And I don't think that's fair. Not it's, that I would identify in that way myself. I'm not bothered about St George's Day. It doesn't mean anything to me. But, you know, I think it's fair enough if it does for other people, as long as they're not doing it in a negative way. Yeah, I think that's it. As long as it's not hurting anybody, and that's the point, and it's, yeah. it's not hurting anybody. But <clears throat> there are strangely fine lines with this nationalism malarkey, because in football, for example, you know, like a couple of, like, good Welsh friends that I've got, they would never, ever support the England football team, but they would support, and they do support, the England cricket team. Because the England cricket team is the England and Welsh cricket team and therefore it has Welsh people coming. In fact, the England cricket team has Welsh and Irish and South African and you name it. And it's had a Scottish captain before now. It's had a Welsh captain before now. It's had an Irish captain. It encompasses a lot more people, but it's not any way near as divisive as football has it. You know, it's a different thing. And it's one place where you go, oh, didn't we do well at the test match today? Yeah, brilliant. You know, because... We're happy. Yeah. Everyone's happy to beat the Australians, for example, you know. You're right, it is a fine line, ultimately. Very fine line. It's all It's all very fine. There must be something, though, Lee, in the human condition. And this is a really, I think we're making a, I think we're making a really important point here. There must be something in the overall human condition that wants us to feel like we belong to something. Yeah. Because that whole thing, and we've been, we've been over this territory big time, with the football podcast that we did, where you get so embedded in your team. It's your team that matters. Forget everything else. So there's something. So if you're not a nationalistic person, you can still be like a massive fan of like, I don't know, yeah. let's say West Bromwich Albion or something like that, that you would absolutely die for them because you meet, that means so much to you. We all feel like we need to belong into something. And I think part mm-hmm. of the problem is that that's been the whole nationalism thing has taken that to another level. It's such a level where I don't know, you know, it's a, it's a form of brain. I remember Morrissey, uh, perhaps he, <laughs> he's good on this, but Morrissey, when he wrote the National Front Disco off one of his solo albums, I mean, that was a controversial song because it's like, oh, he's, he's supporting the National Front. Well, he wasn't. What he was actually saying was, You've got this group of lads that they don't necessarily believe in being boot boys and being racist. And the fact that he called it National Front Disco was an irony because it was like they're celebrating black music. Yeah. You know, disco music. But most people didn't get that. Most people, this was before Morrissey was uh, the controversial figure he is now. Well, most Guinness were into Scar which is a derivative of black music you know it's a part of black uh, culture i suppose shane meadows highlighted that in didn't he in this is england where most of the skinheads are not interested in the nationalism stuff and the racist stuff it's just the the stephen graham character that is so there's there was sort of two sides to that and i think if you listen to i remember seeing a documentary about members of former members of combat 18 and the nf and that 
and they basically said the same you know they weren't they had black mates it was just something to belong to they didn't take it that seriously uh, although there was some obviously hardcore members of those groups but eventually they grew out of it yeah absolutely i think that's most people grow out of that kind of inherent belligerent racism and uh see see the light of the the nonsense that it is really you know? yeah, and do regret it you know they do regret and feel ashamed i'm sure that they, that they did some of the stuff that they did yeah but um Going back to the Falklands, uh, another another sort of symbol of the Falklands, if you like. I mean, well, we haven't covered the uh, Galahad, have we? No, no, which is... Uh, yeah. That so, is crazy, the whole... Yeah, I mean... left is a single target. Fuck's sake, yeah, I know. Yeah, so the Sir Galahad, which was bombed by the Archie Skyhawks, it was carrying troops, wasn't it? Uh, so they were refreshing the troops but for some reason there was a problem in getting the troops off the ship and onto the island so it was sat in broad daylight for i think most of the day wasn't it because i was trying to find out well wasn't there any protection for the galahad but i think the Aussies were quite clever and they distracted our air force yes our sea harriers somewhere else so it gave them a clear run apparently it was a fucking amazing strike that they managed to do you know bomb it because they hit it twice didn't they yeah and so many died or injured and uh, of course that was the ship that simon weston was on indeed and he's so very to... much a symbol of the falklands isn't it <coughs> indeed you, think he is. Portland, you always think of simon and um just to explain to anybody who listened to the last podcast where i opened by doing simon weston it was very much because we were thinking of this podcast at the time wasn't it Dave so no disrespect to Simon meant no I have changed my opinion off to be honest because I did think he was a bit of a cantankerous miserable git a bit of a media whore well yeah I mean but I do remember seeing the the documentary as a kid you know when he's in hospital and he's having like all these skin grafts and it's an amazing documentary. That I don't know if you've rewatched it, Dave. It is on YouTube. I, I have seen it. I think before he, he did go through an awful lot of bloody hideously yeah. a hideous amount of operations and stuff. It's terrible. It's about 80, I think. Oh, horrible! Poor bastard. But what's interesting about the documentary that you advised me to watch that unfortunately, what happens when somebody's story is highlighted above others, you don't realise the terrible stories of other people that took place, you know, the other things that took place, the one we've already spoken about, you know, the two guys, one, the smaller guy trying to drag the big guy out of the, out of the, the horrible thick smog, passing out. The big guy's already lost a leg, for God's sake. The, the smaller guy's been injured. He's bleeding. He's suffering himself. And he felt so devastated that he ended up leaving the guy for dead that he wanted to yeah. kill himself. You know, that's yeah. a hell of a story. I've never heard that story before. And there's probably a myriad of other stories like that from the Galahad, other than Simon Weston's story. But the whole Western thing is not Simon Weston's fault, if you like. It's the fault of the media. It's the media hold. They grab hold of it, things, you know? Yeah. It's fucking shocking to me. I don't know. He's always called a hero. And he's never wanted to be called a hero because... He's not a hero no. in the 
so he did anything in the war because he didn't even get started did it it was that documentary that projected him and put him in the public the limelight and it was two follow-up documentaries that are equally as interesting so the first one is called simon's war and that is him you know having come back with these horrendous burns he's, he's in a military hospital and he's having operation after operation and he's suffering like mad but he's, he's what really comes through is how positive he is. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. You know, I couldn't believe it, you know. And he wanted to get back. He wanted to be a soldier. And in one of the later documentaries, it's, there's really quite a sad bit where he is he's recovered pretty well. His hands are getting better and he can use them and stuff. But he just gets discharged from the army because, you know, his physical condition isn't good enough. It was just the way it was done. It was done in a very sort of formal, straightforward way. This was this guy's life. He joined the army from school. It's all he ever wanted to do was be a soldier. He'd held that hope. And that was it was the hope that got him through all those terrible years before. And then he just gets told, no, you don't meet the standards. Yes, you're getting discharged. Here's the number of a careers officer. So we get sent off to this careers officer, which reminded me of my fucking appointment with my careers officer. It's just something so 80s about it. Oh, God. He's sat there and they're asking him, well, have you thought about what you wanted to do? And he's like, no, not really. I've always wanted to do soldiering. So I've got a fucking clue what he wants to do. Terrible. And then terrible. they show him in his home where he's starting to become depressed and he's He's upsetting his mother because uh, he's really horrible to her. But he's becoming depressed. He's got no purpose in life anymore. And there's one there's one scene that really sticks out for me where he puts on, I think it's a UB40 tape, and then gets a copy of Guns and Ammo. He's got like a big pile of Guns and Ammo and just sits on his bed reading it while listening to UB40. <laughs> I don't know why that scene resonates. <laughs> I just feel like a lot of these lads are so used, really. So used for... Yeah. I think probably he's a bit embarrassed as well, because even though he did suffer horrendous injuries, and there's no doubt about that, he's kind of feeling... Excited. I think they absolutely fucked up his face, though, Dave. I'm sorry oh, yeah. to say. Oh, yeah. Well, I think they, you know, they can it, do a lot more now than they did then. Yeah, I mean, this is probably army plastic surgeons... But he kind of outshone, and he's probably slightly embarrassed. He's outshone, in a way, his story. It's outshone some of the other horrendous, you know, humanitarian stories that have taken place. And the recoveries and the survival of some people that have been through that nightmare and come through the other side. And it's nice, in a way, to hear those stories, apart from, I mean, 40 years too late, I might add. But it's come out now. You know, and at least they're getting their voice. And I think that's good because perhaps back then there was only a, when you look back at that period, like a handful of people that got mentioned about what took place. You know, we're hearing about it now at the time. You know, what was on the news? Prince fucking Andrew in some helicopter totally kept safe. That nonce boy, that fucking nonce. (laughs) You know, what did he do? Did fuck all. You know, yeah. he's, never, he's an absolute disgrace. What did he ever do? He went out in helicopter, went around the block a couple of times. And by God, was he promoted. I remember it at the time. He was mentioned loads on the news. 
the news, mm. the media, all in cahoots, really. You look back at it, and then and these, the Daily Mail readers complain, make out that the BBC are anti-bloody Tory with all the crap. Oh, that, and if you're alluding there, Dave, to the uh, Fulton's play round, did you see anything about that? I did see the uh, play on the BBC about Thatcher's government. In, yeah. That, that was Patricia Hodge. Patricia Hodge. Fantastic. I love yeah. that. Yeah, it is really good. But what really struck me about the play was how amazing Thatcher comes across as. She comes across as compassionate. She comes across as amazingly smart. It's not the Thatcher we we know, really, or, or we, we, we thought we knew. But the play itself was really controversial because... It was written by this guy called Ian Curtis, right? Not the, obviously, the yeah. Geordie Vision guy. Geordie Vision so He topped himself near that <laughs> Before then. But uh, he had written some other political plays about Churchill and so forth. And I think the director general, who I think at the time was Alistair Milne, was so impressed with him that he said, oh, why don't you write something about the Falklands? So he went, he went away and he wrote this play. And when he presented to the BBC, Michael Grade had been installed as um, head of something, right? So he went under his nose and he went under this other guy's nose, this head of drama guy. And they both thought it was shit. Right. So they worked with him to try and improve it because they thought, oh, Thatcher's a bit one-dimensional. You've not really showed the RG side and they're a bit sort of cartoonish, these RG characters, etc. So they just wanted him to work on the script. But it was taken... As if, uh, I mean, the, Tory, the Tories eventually heard about this play and it was, the narrative was it's being suppressed by the lefty pinkos of the BBC, right? Because it's too pro-Thatcher. It paints a really good impression of Thatcher and Thatcher's government. But Michael Grade insists that it was just not good enough. So the play itself, which was due for broadcast around 85, I think, was shelved and... Even though they tried to work on it, Ian Curtis, the writer, wasn't being as cooperative as he was expected to be. So it never got it never got made until much later, and I think it was broadcast in 2002. But there's a really good half-hour programme on the iPlayer about the row about this play, and it features all these people that have been talking about Michael Grade, etc. This is the ideological difference that some Tories might have thought, well, it just shows how strong she was and how... I watched that play and just thought, what a fucking fix. Yeah, she was under a lot of um, pressure. You hear this in Curtis being interviewed, Dave, on the documentary. You can tell he loves Thatcher. He absolutely loves her. I'm sure he does, but to anyone who isn't a Thatcherite, it just looks like somebody who is pushing forth onto something that will keep her in power. And it actually says it here. You know, it says... Well, uh, he, he never put that aspect in the play. It was all that Thatcher was coming from a righteous, just position. It was nothing to do with political manoeuvring or her, uh, you know, waning popularity. Wait, so this Martin, was the thing, that's what I'm saying. This is what struck me about when I watched it, was how amazing Thatcher comes across. I have yeah. watched that and I didn't think of it. And it's maybe because of my initial point of view. And I didn't know that this guy who wrote it, this Ian Curtis guy, was a real Thatcherite. 
But I have watched that play and I just thought, well, what a bloody, <laughs> you know, the reality was what an opportune moment to go to war. I mean, I know that it does purport all these different aspects of it and that, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't kind of thing. Obviously, you're in a position like that. The media say, why aren't we defending British citizens? Blah, blah, blah. You know, but the reality in real terms is that, as it says here, the Falklands War of April to June 1982 was the turning point in Mrs. Thatcher's premiership, indeed, in her political career. And that is the truth. Mm. She went on to yeah. serve till 1990 or 1990. Was it 1990? Yeah. And, you know, she was in there a long time. And... Lots and lots and lots of people hated her. Yeah, fucking despised her. It did not relate to her in any way, shape, or form. Possibly she would have got some criticism. She did, if she'd not gone to war, she would have probably got some criticism from the backbenchers. But I think Labour were against the war, weren't they? You know, Michael Foot was not supportive of it. Uh, but talking about Michael Foot, I've always wondered about how his neighbours must refer to him and his family. You know, did he refer to them as the foot? <laughs> oh, the feet. <laughs> so did he say, oh, oh, I see the feet have got a new car, or the foots are on holiday again? <laughs> I like that. I'd never thought that. Before. Some humour, Dave. We've actually got some humour into the podcast. We've been serious again. I was so invested in that fucking documentary and those stories. That is such an interesting documentary, that. These are people that I probably wouldn't want to meet in the pub, to be honest with you. Some of them, they're kind of highly potentially dangerous guys still out there. But yeah. I have so much empathy for them because they've been through fucking hell. Yeah, I think, I think the one that really touched me was the Commander Waddington. I liked him a lot. A very thoughtful... Because I can imagine him has took a lot of guilt from that war and that he did lose it and he, he didn't save certain people and... And he did say afterwards, you know, it's the first time I've brought it out and now I'm going to lock it away in the box and chuck away oh. the key because he didn't try to make himself out to be better than he was. He, he was very candid about his failings, wasn't he? But Lee, oh, what, I'm sorry. what I wanted to say to you is you tapped into something that I wanted to say before. It's a brilliant point is... The fact that so many of these soldiers just didn't want to talk. And some of them have never spoken about it. I mean, these days you would get that support. You would get encouraged to talk about it. You would be sent to a psychologist. So I suppose there's a mixture of them finding it hard, but also just not being told they can talk about it. And I think possibly because of what's happened since and the way you look back on the fallings, is many... You know, it's sort of a bit of a sense of shame, that war, isn't it? And mm. it's not considered a just war in many ways. No. So, yeah, all those elements. It beggars the question as well. Is it easier sometimes for men to just try and block out a part of their life, a part of their past, in order for them to just survive and exist? They were all very reluctant to talk about it. So much so they said, I've never spoken about this since being there i mean that's crazy that amazing isn't it amazingly mm. amazing i can understand that in a way that you want to lock it away because if you if you open it up and you 
you start reliving it and talking about it, it's a can of worms that you might not be able to shut. And it doesn't always work, I don't think. I think sometimes something is so traumatic and so troubling that locking it away might be the right thing to do. Yeah, it depends on the person, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because I hear from people that they've been encouraged to talk about child abuse that they suffered and it's just made them feel worse because they're reliving it all the time and they can't get out of their head. Whereas it wasn't ideal them locking it away, but it was a way of coping. Absolutely. And I think there's a, there's a there is an argument for that these days, isn't there? It's not always like, oh, it's always good to talk about it. It isn't always necessarily good no. to talk about it. Sometimes it's good to be able to be allowed to deal with it in your own way. And I think these guys are survivors and they've survived. You know, and I have huge respect for them over that. I mean, it must be terrible that some of the things they've witnessed and been through and they must feel so unjustly treated really they're probably thinking the same thing that everybody else think that we did this for the we killed all those people and we we lost all our mates because of these fucking islands yeah yeah <laughs> i don't know it's just not a very significant victory is it it's terrible the scheme of things they did a memorial at our local school this week and all these ex squaddies from mm. there showed up for it and they were all on like motorbikes. They were all like kind of a Hell's Angels team for the memory of. I think really what it's about for them is keeping alive the memory of the guys that died, I suppose, and, and yeah. what took place and what they went through. But it would be nice for all the little kids at that junior school just down the road from where I live here, when they're a little bit older, to actually look and see what actually what took place and say. Is it right to ever send our armed forces to something so politicised again for the sake of something that could have been negotiated? Like we were saying before, for the 1,200 people or whatever, who knows how many were there at the time, 800 people or whatever, mm. to be re- relocated somewhere in Britain. You know, for what? For for a bunch of land that nobody really wants. I mean, nobody really wants to live there. Good God! <laughs> You know what, I have, I have been looking into visiting it, Dave, because I would like to go. Just, I don't know why, it's, there's just something, it's part of my history in a way, even though obviously I had nothing to do with it. It was just something I really remember. You know, I mean, you think about that first half of the 80s, I was like 10 to 15, and we had we had the Falklands, we had the IRA fucking bombing us, we had nuclear threat. And I really sort of focus on that, you know, when I look back, you know, that's what I remember of that time. I don't remember too much else about what I was up to and stuff. But I just remember these outside forces, you know, the news and stuff. And the Falklands is a big memory for me for some reason. So I was looking into it and apparently there's two flights per week from Bryce Norton, Dave, that civilians can get on. Really? Yeah. I must admit, I would like to go myself. Yeah. But in a way, it's kind of like, I'd like to to go to Greenland as well. And I'd like to go to the Antarctic. Because I think when I think of the Antarctic, I think of the thing. And I think how amazing it would be into like an ice scientific station in the Antarctic. You have these remote Oh, good, Dave. I'm glad you want to go. We'll get them flights booked. Let's do it. I'd love to go to the fort. Yeah. 
as long as I'm not on the same flight with Jim fucking Davidson, who goes down there all the time to to like <laughs> jolly up the locals. And talking of that, I've just looked at this now. It says here, Falkland Islands town given city status, city status, the Platinum Jubilee. What <laughs> kind of nonsensical hogwash is that? Yeah. What? What? You've got to scratch your head and think that is absolutely ridiculous. Port Stanley becomes a city because it's the Platinum. <laughs> Anyone gives a flying fork. What I would say is that it's got some quite colourful roofs in Port Stanley. If anyone out there, any listeners, That's it's like with Tobermory or Balamory or whatever. It's, to, it's the real place is uh, Tobermory. Plopton, is it? Oh, Plopton. It looks a little bit like Plopton. Yeah, <clears> it does. <throat> looks quite colourful. Looks quite nice. I thought I'd Google image the Falkland Islands and just look at all this barren terrain. But actually, <laughs> Port Stanley looks rather pleasant, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Looks like there's more than 1,200 people living there, for fuck's sake. Christ. It would definitely be good to go, I think. <laughs> Should we get in touch with the old Wicker Man lads and see if they want to... You know how we used to go to Scotland every year? Shall we just... Since it's like the 21st anniversary coming up, shall we go to the Falklands instead? <laughs> the same sort of weather, wouldn't it? Be part of the something wicked road trip, Dave. Which uh, oh yes, oh yes, Rendlesham, the Stones. Oh my God, uh, Bradford. See <laughs> 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 Yorkshire Ripper's house. Oh my God, I love this idea. Do something wicked road trip, and we could do pods as we go. Because what we could do as well, we could do a um, Black Monk of Pontefract. Do the Yorkshire Ripper. Then go on to Pontefract, do the Black Monk mm. of Pontefract, of course, which is the the story that we all loved back in the day, of the uh, and that is a highly regarded sort of poltergeist story as well, uh, along with the Enfield case, and uh, yeah, there's so many areas that we've covered, isn't there? You know, and of course we need to go to Todmorden as well. Oh yeah, Mr. Godfrey, PC Godfrey. Oh yeah, this is fantastically. I just I hope know. he's not listening to this podcast. If we if we do end up interviewing him, I hope he doesn't listen <laughs> to me uh, casting doubt on his uh, cast iron story. I'm loving. I love the book. It's such a good read. It's so wonderfully plodding as well. You know, it's and this is ultimately whichever way you look at it. The, what we've talked about tonight, the the Falklands. It, you know, it is a story. It will we'll never be able to live what these guys went through but them just talking about that battle for goose green it's insane you know in the middle of the night going after trench after trench killing people throwing explosives into people wrapped up in sleeping bags because they couldn't take the chance the admittance of that is incredible the honesty of these guys and the things that they did the honesty is incredible that talk of the smell of of spilled guts and feces that they couldn't get out of their the nose, mm. and that that squaddy saying I can't handle it if someone's farts. It's so honest. The way it was laid out is incredible, and it will stay with me because I always thought it was this kind of oh we we send our troops in there, you know, kick the arches into touch, and it was all politicised. But people really fucking suffered, man. 
Much more than I thought. I'm glad I saw that. It was... And I should have realised that, because I've seen... It's good, good, actually, that the BBC did commemorate it, isn't it? Because, I mean, I'm sure they did commemorate 30 years, 20 years, but I don't remember it. And it's interesting that it's some for some of these guys, actually most of them, it is the first time they've spoke about it. And they were the yeah. real heroes. They conquered Goose Green and yeah. uh, the, the Scots Guards concert, which are also featured, they conquered Tumble Down and... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Galahad guys, you know, they're, you know, it's amazing that it's taken them 40 years to actually either speak about it or be invited to speak about it. Yeah, I think it's a disgrace in a way, isn't it? Mm. It is in a way. It's a disgrace that it's taken 40 years for them to have their voice. It seemed to me that the open kind of consensus was that they were all dead nervous to talk about it because they'd locked yeah. it away. They were. It, it wasn't prevalent on their mind. They just wanted to forget, in a way. They wanted to move on with their lives from what happened. I found that very touching, really. I was particularly struck by Robert Lawrence, the tumble-down guy, because mm. he's quite a sort of poshish bloke, isn't he? He's, yeah. He looks nothing like what he used to look like. If you look at a photograph at the time, and he's got, like, blonde hair, and he's... Uh, but now he looks like a bit like Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen, and the cross between Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen and a musketeer, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, he's got that kind of uh, bohemian kind of look, uh, yeah. It's just a good... In- it was just a good insight into him, because Tumbledown, which we've not spoke about... I mean, I've not fully watched it. It is on iPlayer, so I've started watching it, but Colin first said that both the, the right and the left didn't like it, because it doesn't really take a position... Yeah, and he doesn't come across as very likable as well. That's another thing. No, I've, yeah. I've watched Tumble Down before, actually, or, or the line part of it, and I thought it was yeah. very. And he's brilliant in it. I mean, Colin Firth is an excellent actor. There is no doubt about yeah. it. I know. imagine that was one of his first roles, wasn't it? His first it big could role. well could well be. You know, Thanks. that was a great sort of play as well at the time because it was still kind of like an open wound for the Falklands in a way. It was. Mm. Uh, we haven't had the retrospective on it as we have had now, where we can really look at it and dissect it and talk about it. And I, I just, I just came away though thinking, such, for all of the guys that had to go through that, massive kudos, massive respect for them. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have gone through that. And if I had, I'd be so fucking bitter about it today. To be used as a, a political, because. Po- and the Argentinian soldiers too, the ones that have survived, they must feel very bitter because they were used as a shockingly, shocking political pawn, those mm. soldiers. Simon Weston and the guy that bombed him are good friends now. Oh, yeah. I remember Which seeing something on that. Isn't as shocking as you might think, really, no. because they were both uh, doing a job. It, it wasn't anything personal, but it must feel quite weird to meet the guy that caused you such suffering such suffering and pain yeah it's kind of like the uh, like you said about the um the soldier saying uh and i say soldier very liberally because he was a kid in, in conscripted and an argentinian kid conscripted a lot of the british lads they were trained soldiers and they say no you know or saying please you know and, well the fact that he used english as well oh so touching. You know, it's that last desperate attempt to attempt to save his own life and the 
religious lad who was doubtful whether he could kill when he did kill going back to it again that really got me that, that he sat with him and stroked his face and his hair while he died in his arms the man he killed the man he killed they're all victims. But I love that bit with him when he said he's in. he was in the pub and people had found out he was in the Falklands and someone had come up and put a pint in front of him and said, oh, you were in the Falklands, you know, did you kill anyone? Oh. And he ended up pouring a pint over some guy's head and said, do you think you can pick my brains for a pint of lager? Fuck, Fuck off. off. Yeah. Can I tell you something, Lee? There was a family friend called Uncle Bill. He was my dad's pal, very good friends with my dad. And uh, <laughs> he called him Uncle Bill. He wasn't our uncle because my dad's name was Bill. But um, he was a lovely friend. And he used to do decorating jobs around our house and stuff. And he fought in the Korean War. And he was so nice with all of us. But I remember saying to him once, because I knew he was in the it, it fought in Korea. I said, Uncle Bill, I said, did you ever kill anybody in Korea? And it's the only time, he was such a jovial guy, he got really cross with me. He said, Dave, you never ask that question. You never ask me that question. I yeah. Really, like, I really felt scolded. You know, I'd done something wrong. And I, in retrospect, I think, why? You know, what a ridiculous thing to ask somebody, because he obviously had. He'd obviously killed somebody. Yeah. Career. It, it haunted him. He was the most yeah. jovial, easygoing, lovely person, but it really caught a nerve with him, Lee. Oh, it's amazing how some people would think of it as just something you do in war. It's inevitable that you do it, but if you actually do it, it it oh my god yeah. really sort of affects you doesn't it i think when clint eastwood made the unforgiven he sort of grew up and the, he has that line in that in the unforgiven where he turns to the lad and he says it's a hell of a thing to kill a man kid you know to take away everything that he would have and would ever have a hell of a yeah. th-. and it made me really, i thought jesus that's so true you know how do you live with yourself how do you in the aftermath of killing somebody how yeah. do you reason it how do you put it into well, terms this is it i mean they can't they, find peace with it they can't find peace because once the adrenaline's died down and once they've walked away from it once they've gone back to civvy street if you like they're haunted by it you're going to be haunted by doing something like that it's not the same as like bloody uh i don't know nicking a bit of chocolate <laughs> from a shop or something or any kind of petty bloody crime. Not that it's a crime. I'm not suggesting it's, you know, they've been ordered to do that. I feel bad saying that now because they're not criminals in any way, shape or form. But they feel, they probably feel like they've done something truly horrendous. And they have. They've taken someone's life. I know it's all part of the game, if you like. It's all part of someone else is going to take their life if they don't take. But how the hell do you live with yourself beyond that? And some of them, so many of them, just can't handle it. So many of them have killed themselves or gone on to do violent acts because they've been so... I think that's what... Traumatised. ...to me when I was listening to Robert Lawrence, the tumble-down guy, is that, you know, he admits he's difficult to live with and he has really shocking moments where he's probably awful to his wife. But it's not about what's happened to him. I'm sure he's sort of... Resolve that in his own head, you know, whether he got justice or not. Or it's the fact that he killed someone. That's the yeah. thing. I'm sure that he's he's still troubling him, and he's not able to forgive himself for. How how do you you know if you've killed, you know, like the like the commander 
And a 19-year-old said, he gave someone else his gun. He ran across. He went to cradle the, the corporal that had been killed and realised because he thought he could carry him and bring him back. And he, yeah. put, he, he said it's not. It. Yeah, that's a good bit, that. He said it's not like in the films. It's not you in the films. You can't do just it. Just run into the battlefield and pick up your mate. He says this is the guy. He weighs two hundred pound. He's got another hundred pound worth of gear on. Can't fucking move him. And then he was asked. He was asked, "Why did you go without your gun?" And he'd never thought about that before. He just went, "I don't know." But then when he reclaimed his gun, he was Mm. very honest to say, "I just went in a frenzy and I killed an Argentinian guy." He was absolutely going. He went insane. He went absolutely Mm. insane. So. He's been traumatised with two things in the space of, like, five minutes, let's say. The death of his comrade, who he couldn't he couldn't retrieve his body, the feeling of helplessness, and then the feeling of rage, and taking somebody else's life in vengeance for that. And that has haunted him. You can tell that, that those incidents have haunted that man for 40 years. Every day of his life, he's had to live with that. Then you get that other guy who was there with his wife, beautiful couple. I thought they were a lovely couple. And he was saying how he's got a noose set up in his house because the idea that he can take his life kind of stops him doing it because he's got suicidal tendencies from what he's mm. lived through. Jesus Christ. Yeah, he was on the Galahad, wasn't he? Unbelievable, mate. Unbelievable. Yeah, on the Galahad. I think the films about Vietnam have have captured this, you know, the films about like the deer hunter and platoon have really captured the trauma that yes, they the have soldiers to. go through and what they have to live with when they come back. Yeah. I think they've been brilliantly, but apart from Tumble Down, I suppose, there's never really been another drama or film that I can think of that has covered the Falklands conflict. No, I think I think soldier's point of view and experience. Well you make you brought up a brilliant point there because something that I thought to myself when I was watching the documentary thing, saying, I'm going to say this to Lee, you know, this story hasn't been told. It hasn't been told in the way that all these Second World War stories have been told. Why can't we have like a longest day type story about the Falklands or a saving Private Ryan, more to the point, showing the reality, showing the brutal reality of it, showing some of the tactics and the the things that took place giving us an idea of what actually happened. You know, that documentary was amazing. And film companies waste thousands and millions of pounds on some daft projects when something like that could be so enlightening, really, I think, to mm. people. You know, the, the futility of war, Jesus wept. It's terrible. Absolutely yeah. terrible, really, when you look back on it. These guys' lives have been traumatised forever as a consequence of what they had to do, you know. And that's not decrying tumble down. Really good drama. Brilliantly done drama about it. But that documentary really brought it home that to tell the story of that is uh, a very worthy thing to dramatise that story. Yeah. The Falklands has been, in a way, it's been swept under the carpet. Yeah, it has, definitely. I mean, I don't know if that's because we were embarrassed about it or it lasted 70-odd days, you know. Because the cynics of us and the majority of us now go, well, it was it was kind of a Thatcherite 
cabal, you know, he kept her in power. And that, that's how we view it today. And we don't view it as a human cost kind of thing. And that so, makes me even cry. It makes me more I bet most people don't know that we lost, uh, I can't remember how many it is. It's about 200 to 300 or 400. Yeah. I don't think people realise that. I think people think it's the... just a, it was a quick in and out job. Uh, it's not even the fact how many we lost as well. It's, it's the people who survived and that had to go there and kill others and yeah. have been traumatised ever since as a consequence of that and have to deal with similar to some, OK, only over a short period of time, but similar circumstances, perhaps, that took place in the First World War, never mind the Second World War. You know, some of those conditions were shocking, you know? Yeah. And I thought it was quite telling yeah. when they... they they had the um, the flight of the Valkyries you play, which I, I couldn't believe that they actually used that. You know, straight off the back of bloody uh, Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse that, now. <laughs> they were using that bloody piece of music to come off the, the landing boats. And one fella said, I thought we were going to get fucking shot to ribbons immediately, just yeah. like uh, at the D-Day landings in the bloody Second World War, you know. <laughs> But that wasn't the yeah. case. They weren't there. There was there. no one there, was there? Nobody there. <laughs> yeah. It's the way back hiding. Way back. And that probably said it all, that they, that actually, they slaughtered the Arges. Who, they didn't want to be there, most of them. That was really shocking to me. And that's, I don't know. One final point. I've always wondered how Thatcher viewed Simon Weston and whether she thought he was an embarrassment or a hero. I never, ever heard her talk about him you know because he was he was yes. a very big figure at that time wasn't he you'd think that she she would have uh, heralded him but as far as i know i don't i don't know that, that there was any mention of him that's an interesting point because he was a double what's interesting he was a kind of double-edged sword he was a vocal person within I don't the who's that anti-war though I mean, I mean i don't know i might be wrong but did he ever come out and criticize the decision to go to war and say I it wasn't worth it don't believe he was i don't i, I don't think he was don't think he did he wasn't exactly the greatest advert for the Falklands war because he was so kind of i hate to use the word mutilated but he was mutilated so it's kind of like here's the most famous person to come out of the, apart from Prince fucking Andrew, out of the bloody <laughs> Falklands War, and he's someone who survived horrendous burns that's meant he's had 80 operations. Yeah. I mean, come on. Not very good ones as well. No, not very good ones. It's not exactly the best PR, is it? No, I shouldn't be laughing, but oh, anyway. I, I just think that right. she, she got re-elected, didn't she? She did, yeah, yeah. Brilliant chat, Dave. Really loved it tonight. And uh, I'm glad that we have paid respect to those guys. You know. Respect to all of them. Respect. Yeah. So for the benefit of the listeners, check out the iPlayer. There's plenty of good stuff on there, including the documentary we're talking about. Tumbledown's on there. The Fultons play and the controversy about the Fultons play is on there. Plus uh, a couple of other things I seem to remember. Can I just say something, Lee? Very important. Listeners, please... I say this from the heart. Please like us, comment on us, give us some support. We do this because we love it and it helps us if you say positive things about our 
fabulous podcast. Until next time. Goodbye. Brezhnev took Afghanistan and Begin took Beirut. Galtieri took the Union Jack And Maggie, over lunch one day, took a cruiser with all hands Apparently, to make him give it back mm-hmm.